0: Thank you guys, it's, it's uh, been good to be here, and I've enjoyed visiting with the folks I've gotten to visit with and talk with, and uh, appreciate your kindness and um, welcoming hospitality and everything. Um, yeah, my, my name is Joshua Savatoa. I'm a missionary, been a pastor, been, been up there for 13 years working on the Ockham Reservation, and uh, today's sermon is from Luke chapter 19. It's a passage I expect everybody knows pretty well. Um it's a, it's a very famous story. It's one that you might think is reserved for children or is only for, for kids, but I will hold out to you that there are things in there for all of us. Uh, and I hope there's some, some good things you can see in it today, maybe some new things. So we're uh, in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for stories that are simple and straightforward, that uh, sometimes we think are just reserved for children. We pray, Lord, that... Um, during this service, during this preaching, we can see Jesus better. We can see him as more beautiful and more real, as stronger, more powerful. We can see him as a savior. And we can see him as, as something more beautiful and real than all these things in the world that pull after us. We ask all this because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. Amen. I uh, will start with a question for you. Have you guys ever had a time when you've been stuck in your life? It could have been... Maybe when uh, you were in a job that you really, really hated and you felt stuck in that job. Or maybe there was a time when you were on the side of the road and you had a flat tire and then you open the trunk and realize there's no spare, or the spare you have is also flat. Uh, we, have, we have times in our life when we get stuck, when we need to get unstuck. And typically, the way you get unstuck is you need help. You need someone to help. You need someone stronger than you. Maybe they have more knowledge, more skill to help you get unstuck. And I have a story about me. I was about seven or eight years old and I was hanging out at a friend of ours' house uh, named Maureen Bishop, playing with her kids, and, and I don't know why I did this. Uh, I know a little bit about why I did it. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I am what you might call a texturist, not a textualist, but textures always draw my attention. And so I'm often smelling things, touching things, feeling things. My, my little travel Bible has this little pattern on the front, so I'm often feeling it. Um, but I'm, I'm, also, I'm often feeling things and, and, and doing things, so... When I was at her house, for whatever reason, she had a four-legged chair, a wooden chair, with those little crossbeams going on it, and I decided I was going to stick my head in there. And so I, I, I did. I stuck my head in the chair, and then I, I tried to climb out, but for whatever reason, I couldn't get out. And so I started freaking out, started crying, started screaming, asking for help, and uh, Miss Bishop comes in, and you know, she, she, uh, it didn't bother her in the least. She'd probably seen stuff like this before. She had, she had several kids of her own. So she just tells me to sit down, calm down, uh, in my head, I'm thinking, what if this chair gets stuck on my head? What if people see me like this? What if I, what if, what if I have to go for years? What if, they have to get a, uh, what, what if they have to get a saw and cut this off? This is, this is embarrassing. And uh, of course, Miss Bishop just had me sit down, calm down, turn the chair, got it off my head, and everything was fine. Uh, but the point of that, or part of the point of that, is in the middle of being stuck, I was filled with fear and I was filled with worry and I was scared. I was uh, thinking all these things in my head, and like I said, I was stuck. Like I said, in that moment, too, I needed someone to rescue me. I needed someone to help me. I was, I was stuck, and I needed to get unstuck. And in this story of Zacchaeus, we have a story of somebody who's stuck, and he needs to get unstuck, and as we just read, you see he gets unstuck. So we're going we're to gonna kind of break this down a little bit more. One thing that I love about this story is, is the imagery of it, the Every summer we do what we call Kids Club. We'll do these kids programs and two housing projects on the reservation. And housing projects can be really rough places. But we, the way we do it is we'll take the kids and we'll have them act out a Bible story. And what we'll usually do is, is I'll have a script, they'll be dressed in costumes, and then I'll say a line, and then I'll whisper to the kid, you say the line, and they'll say it. Sometimes they don't, they get, they get stage fright. But this is always one of my favorite ones to do. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful story. It's, it's one, probably one of my favorite stories in the Bible. But I, I love to do it because of the imagery you get. And we'll, we'll, when we do it, we'll get the tallest person we can to be the tree, and then we'll get the shortest kid we can to be Zacchaeus. And it's a great story. It's a beautiful story. When we, when we look at Scripture, when we look at people that are stuck in cycles of sin, whether they are people that are stuck in cycles of alcohol and abuse, or cycles of violence, or cycles of sin that nobody knows about, they're just keeping to themselves, there's this principle: you need to get rescued. You need something outside of you to help you. And with the story of Zacchaeus, we see that. We see someone who needs to get rescued. Jesus rescues him. It's, it's pretty simple. So we look at Zacchaeus. We know, we know what do we know about him? It's the only story we have about him in the Bible. He's not mentioned in Matthew and Mark and John. He's only mentioned here in Luke. And it's, it's a beautiful story. We see in verses one through four, we learn a couple things about him. We learn he's from Jericho. We learn he's wealthy, He's a tax collector, He's short and he wanted to see Jesus. That's all the backstory we get. We don't get that much backstory about what he's like and what his life has been like. But from that we can gather a couple things. We can we can talk about what it was like to be a tax collector in that time. And some of you guys you guys may know this too. But we we know this about tax collectors at that time. Well, we know this about tax collectors in that time and tax collectors in this time. They're generally not the most beloved people. If, you, if, you, if someone tells you there's an IRS, coming to, IRS agent coming to visit your house, you're not going to be like, yay, this is great. Uh, you, might, you might be worried. Uh, but in, in the Roman times, they didn't have cash registers that automatically took your taxes. They didn't have the IRS taking money out of your paycheck. And kind of the way the, the system worked is that there would be a local Roman tax collector. And he would generally get that job by bidding for the job. So the Roman officials would say, we need some tax collectors. Um, pay us and you can do the job. So somebody would get the job. And at that time too, there was pretty much no news. So if the if if the well, not, if Caesar or the emperor said, everybody needs to pay $10. Uh, there was no way for you to know if that was true or not. And you're in your house, you're doing your thing, the tax collector shows up, often with a soldier behind him or beside him, and the tax collector shows up and says, hey, you need to pay $20 or $50 or $100. You have no way to know if it's 10 20 50 you, but there's a soldier there with a sword, and they're going to do some stuff to you if you don't pay. It's, it's kind of like robbery. So that, that's kind of how the system would work, that tax collectors would work like that. They'd have to pay for their job, and then they would make money by collecting more than what was required. So maybe, maybe Caesar said collect 10, and if they were maybe an honest tax collector, they might just collect 12 from everybody and keep a little bit. If they were dishonest, again, they could raise their rates pretty high, and there's not very much they could do, or not much the people could do to stop them. So We can think about Zacchaeus. For him, it's a great deal. He's making a lot of money, but we also know that he's hurting a lot of people around him. He's hurting the community. He's making people angry at him. Um, We also see that he's very rich. He's a very wealthy man, so he's been doing a good job at this. He's been doing a good job of taking people's money and hurting them. So not only is he a tax collector and cheating people and taking their money, he's also working for the Romans. And again, if you know much about this history and this time, the Romans had come into Israel about 100 years earlier, and they were occupiers. They had occupied this country, and they were ruling with a heavy hand. There was often violence committed against the Jewish people. There were a lot of bad things that happened. It wasn't a very good time to be a Jewish person. And so tax collectors not only are taking money, but they're working for the Romans. They're working for the enemy. They're working for the people that have come and conquered their country. So we can again think about Zacchaeus and what he's done. He's not only been cheating his neighbors and his family, he's working for the bad guys. He's working for the evil people. He's a traitor. He's a traitor, and he would have been very hated by his people. I've always liked um, World War II as a history and movies. And if you've ever seen a a movie in World War II, there'll often be a scene where the Allies, usually the Americans, are liberating a town in Europe and they may go into a town in Belgium, and the the Nazis have just fled, the allies come in, and the people in town, they get excited, they celebrate, they're giving away candy and uh, chocolates, and everybody's having a good time. Then the next thing that those people in that town do is they take care of the collaborators, they take care of the traders, because while the Germans were in the town, there were people in town who were collaborating with them, who gave them information, who worked hand-in-hand with them, who sometimes turned in their own people for money or for position, And typically, what you would see in in these movies and historically and in books, those people would get their just desserts. They would sometimes be banished from town. Sometimes they would literally be tarred and feathered, paraded through town with signs saying, collaborator, traitor. Uh, Sometimes they get killed. And in in some ways, there's some justice there. This town has had a lot of grief and a lot of problems, partly because of these people that are helping the enemy. So we can think about that for Zacchaeus too. He's someone who's a collaborator who's a traitor, who's hated by his town. He's hated by probably his own family. His family's probably turned their back on him because of what he does and how he lives. He's not a man who's loved. He's a man who's hated and alone. We can also think, too, when we do evil things, it it hurts other people. But it also hurts us. It has an impact on us. As we sin, as we do things that are evil to other people, as we do things that are evil to ourselves, it, it grows in us. It causes us to become dead inside. It causes us to be hurt. It, got, it causes us to be more and more isolated. So when we look at Zacchaeus, we can think he's, he's probably rich. He probably has a nice house and the best clothes and the best horse. Uh, he's, he's, he's got the best food, for sure. But he's probably a man who doesn't have very many friends. And the friends that he does have are probably only there because of his position and his wealth, and what they can get from it. But they're not truly his friends. Once his wealth and position is gone, they won't, they won't be around anymore. We can think of him as a man who's alone and friendless, a very sad, lonely little man. And I think you can kind of gather this from the story a little bit. Whenever Jesus is traveling, there are huge crowds. Well, not always, but for the most part, when Jesus is traveling in the Gospels, there's big crowds following him, lots and lots of people. And it says in the story that he can't get in to see Jesus because of the crowd. But I also like to think about this. What, what would the picture be like if there's this crowd of people, hundreds of people, maybe thousands, waiting for Jesus, lined up on the street because Jesus is about to pass through? And you can, you can kind of picture that yourself. What's it look like? All these people everywhere. And you can imagine Zacchaeus being part of that crowd. You can imagine him walking up to people, and he wants to see Jesus too. But you can imagine him going up to somebody and saying, hey, um, can, I, can I get to the front? You know, can I, I'm shorter than you. You can see over me. Can I, can I get into the front? And you can again imagine this, him tapping people on the shoulder. What are those people, as they turn around to see Zacchaeus, what's their response? Most of those people are going to hate him. They're gonna, they're gonna, some of them may just turn their shoulders and ignore him, being polite people. Some people may spit at him, curse at him, kick dirt in his face, say evil things to him, and he deserves that. So you can imagine him doing that in this crowd and being hated. You can imagine what people's eyes communicate to him. People can't act on their hatred towards him, but their eyes are filled with hate towards this man. So you imagine him going up the line. No one's going to let him in. No one's going to let him to the front. No one's going to let him into that position. But you can also think about Zacchaeus. He's a rich man. What, is, what does a rich person do if they can't get what they want? They could use their riches. I could picture him, too, going up and down the crowd saying, here's $100. Let me to the front of your line. Let me, let me have your spot. And people, people aren't going to let him. People don't want to help him. People hate him. They hate him. You could also imagine him using his position. He knows Roman officials. He could use his, his uh, links he has to make things happen. And I think part of the reason why we see him climbing the tree, it does say he's short, but I also imagine that he's a person who's stuck, who's at the end of his rope, has nowhere else to turn to. His riches aren't helping him. His position's not helping him. He has nothing and nobody to turn to. And so he's in a tree. But we also know Jesus is the kind of guy who likes to help people who are stuck. He likes to rescue those people. I also love the picture of Zacchaeus in a tree and we often think about it as it makes perfect sense. He's short, you want to get taller, get in a tree, stand on a box, climb a building, makes sense. But we can also look at it as Zacchaeus is in a position where he's exposing himself foolishly in front of the world. He's in a tree. And you can think about this, I know we're not in Pensacola, but we're in the Pensacola area. Uh, When was the last time you saw somebody in a tree? When was the last time you saw an adult man in a tree? When was the last time you saw a rich, powerful adult male in a tree? (laughs) It doesn't happen. Uh, The only time I've ever seen adults in a tree is when they're picking apples or cherries or they're cutting the tree down. They're a professional tree cutter. Typically, the only people you see climbing trees are children. It's a a thing for children. Children climb trees. They play. And it's it's fun. When you're older, it's not so much fun. Uh, It's kind of hard. But that's what we see with Zacchaeus. You would never see a rich, powerful man in a tree. And that's where he is. He's at the end of his rope. He's stuck. He's desperate. His heart is filled with the heaviness of what he's been doing all these years, of how he's cheated people, how he's hurted people. Hurted, hurt people, not hurted. How he's hurt people. There have been people in this town that couldn't feed their children because Zacchaeus took the last of their money. There would have been people who lost their homes because they couldn't pay their rent because he took their money. And they have no recourse. They have nothing to do. And he doesn't know how to fix it. He can't go to them and give the money back, because they're going to hurt him, and he's too embarrassed and ashamed. He's a man who needs help. He's a man who needs to get stuck. And we see, of course, that he gets unstuck. He meets Jesus, as I've said. And we're going to get to that in a second, but I want to kind of jump to the end and look at how Zacchaeus changes. When he goes with Jesus, he goes to his house, they eat, and then after we see he's no longer in love with money, but he's in love with God. He says, I want to do good, I will give half of my money to the poor, and if I've cheated anyone, I will pay them back four times more. This man who's done evil, now he's doing good. The man who's cheated is now helping others. The man who was rich and only cared for himself is now caring for the poor and those in need. He's done a complete 180. John Calvin says about him, he shows that he's changed from not only a wolf into a sheep, but even into a shepherd. He's a changed man. He's taking care of people. He's not taking advantage of them. And he does all this, this is important to remember, he does all this not to impress the crowd, not to get the crowd to like him better, not to get Jesus to like him better. He does all this after he's met Jesus. After his encounter with Jesus, he does these things. It's a reminder to us, why do we, good, why do, we do good things? Is it to make, us, to make God like us better? Is it to have our neighbors think better of us? No, it's because we've encountered Jesus, and we know who Jesus is, we know who we are, and we know what God has done for us. Of course, we see that Zacchaeus meets Jesus. Jesus reaches out to him. He's in that tree, and Jesus talks to him. We know, too, this, there was a big crowd. There were hundreds of people, but why does Jesus talk to Zacchaeus? Why does he have mercy on him and not others? And it's easy, again, to say, well, God is love. That makes perfect sense. But there were lots of other people there, too, but we don't know why Jesus pulls him out, why he focuses on him, but he does. I love to think about this with Jesus' eyes. What were Jesus' eyes like when he saw Zacchaeus. I, I said earlier that the people in the town, their eyes were full of hatred and disgust when they saw Zacchaeus. When Jesus saw Zacchaeus, his eyes would have been the eyes of love and the eyes of kindness. We know that when Jesus sees us, when God sees us, Hebrews 8:12 says, "I will remember their sins no more." God sees us, He doesn't see our sins. He doesn't see our failures. He doesn't see our self-hatred or the things we struggle with, the things that we want no one to see. He sees us as one of his children, a child of God. Psalm 18, 19 says, He rescued me because he delighted in me. That's beautiful God delights in us. All those who are in Christ, God delights in them. It's a beautiful thing. And it may be hard for you to believe that God delights in you, that God sees you and, uh, and, and feels like that towards you. But there's other places in Scripture that say similar things. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. And that idea of rejoicing there with singing is not, yay, I'm having a good time. It's a party, it's a celebration akin to the, the prodigal son coming back to the father, throwing a feast for the child who's lost but has been found. That is how Jesus looks at Zacchaeus, and I I've thought about this, and there are a couple analogies that I think work really well. If you've ever been in love, I think you know what it's like to have your eyes dance and light up for somebody else, if you've, uh, and it's beautiful to see that other person and their eyes light up for you. Um, I got married about a year and a half ago, so I'm still in the, the honeymoon phase, and it's pretty awesome, um, but it's, it's a wonderful thing to be in love and to be loved by someone else. Now, if, if you are younger, and you may not know that yet, or maybe you're older and that has eluded you somehow, I think you can understand it in this way. I think all of us have seen puppies. The, the, uh, YouTube is full of puppy videos. Um, but you can see, if you've ever had a, they're not a herd, a crop, whatever they are, a group of puppies, a batch, a litter, a litter of puppies. Um, if you've ever had a litter of puppies, uh, when, you, when you come to them, and you've been away for a little bit, they start wagging, they'll pee themselves, they jump, <laughs> uh, they, they, they fall down because they try to jump and they can't jump. Uh, if you've had a dog and you've been gone for a few ways, they do this. Uh, but it's a wonderful thing to see that, to see that, to see they, they just love you and they're excited and, it's, and you, you feel it and you, you feel good too. Um, but there's so much communicated in our eyes and what we communicate with each other and to each other. I, I actually just learned this about a month ago that the very first muscle, the first and only muscle, a newborn can control is their eyes. They can't control most anything else, but they can control their eyes. And there's a reason for that. There's a a psychological theory called uh, attachment uh, theory, and there's a psychological disorder called attachment disorder. And part of that, um, the gist of it, I guess, is that with, with, with attachment, all of us are born made for attachment. When we're born, in the first few months especially, we're supposed to attach to a caregiver. Typically it's our mom, but it could be a grandmother, or a nurse, or father. Um, but we're made to attach, we're made to connect, we're made to have that healthy, good connection. And as, as we do that, we learn to build trust. We learn that people, there are certain people that are trustworthy, and I can give them my needs, and they're going to respond. And there are certain people that are going to love me and care for me. And we also learn there are certain people that are going to hurt me. And, um, I mentioned that we work with a lot of children and most of the children we're working with come from broken homes and it's, it's normal for a lot of our kids to struggle with issues of attachment and um, you may have heard of there's a, a thing called reactive attachment disorder it's a very severe form of attachment and if any of you guys uh, could remember back to the I think it was the late 80s 90s there were a lot of children that were adopted from Romanian orphanages when this kind of became more more well-known I guess and these, these children were adopted from Romanian orphanages. And in the orphanages, they, they had not been cared for, they had not been fed, they had not been loved, they had not attached to anybody. And then they got adopted out, and the, the new adopted parents tried to raise them and help them, and oftentimes it was really, really difficult because those children didn't know how to connect and attach to, a, to somebody, how to, how to love and how to trust. And uh, as a staff, it's something we've talked about a lot because a lot of our kids have this. And so we, we have different tra- tactics and strategies we use. And there's a really neat lady named Nancy Thomas who wrote a book on this uh, issue. And uh, it's a really great book. It's, it's a purple book that says, When Love is Not Enough, and it has a picture of a teddy bear with a knife that's cut off its own arm, which is a little... It's, it's not an actual picture, it's a drawing. But, um, <laughs> but uh, sometimes people approach children who are, who are from rough places and just say, we're going to love them, we're going to care for them. And, and um, part of what she argues, and others with attachment stuff argue, is that love... Is not is not enough for them, they they need other things too, but anyway, she has these different strategies she uses, and one of the things she talks about that uh, I really love is she's talked about one of the things that when you're working with children who are rough, who are having rough, who are from rough places, what are you thinking about that child? She said it's always communicated um, through your eyes, it's always communicated through the, I forget the term. There's like. Ah, I forgot now. But there's, there's different kinds of communication. You have direct communication and indirect communication. It comes through indirectly, through your eyes, through your mannerisms, and what you're thinking. And she said when she's working with children who are from rough places, she's always thinking of positive things about them and, and, and saying that in her head, kind of saying it over them in a way in a, akin to prophesying uh, over them, speaking the truth, speaking God's love, speaking your love over them. And she, she tells, tells a really great story about how one time she had a little boy and nothing was going well with him. Nothing was positive. Everything was negative. He was not eating. He was, he was getting thinner because he wasn't eating. He wouldn't listen. Everything was rough. And she said she was holding him and she was looking at him and she realized, I'm looking at his eyes and I have nothing positive to communicate through my eyes. She had nothing non-verbally to communicate. And she said, I was at the end of my rope. I didn't know what to do. And so then she said, she started to tell herself in her mind, okay, this boy... He's 8 years old now, but he'll be 10 one day. And then he'll be 15, and then he'll be 20. And his bones are getting bigger. His muscles are getting bigger. He's growing. One day, he's going to grow into a man. And that's all she could think about positively for him. But it, she, 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 counseled, she counsels people that work with children and rough children to, to always be doing that. Think something positive about the child. Uh, not, not the power of positive thinking type of thing. But in your own head, what's your, what's your frame towards this child? What is your attitude towards the child? Is it, I'm sick and tired of you, and I can't do this anymore? (laughs) Uh, Or is it, I love you, and we're going to work through this, and I can't communicate love to you because you don't understand that, but we're going to get there. And uh, it's funny because I've used that strategy a number of times. I, I was the children's ministry director for nine years, and sometimes we would have church or Bible study, and there'd be a kid who couldn't make it through the night, and was just being disruptive, and biting or throwing things or whatever and sometimes i would have to take that kid and go off to the side and the two of us would just hang out sometimes we would just sit and and just sit there um there were sometimes i was trying to hold a kid because he was running away and i got bit uh but i i remember that holding that guy after he bit me and holding him and trying to think one one part of my head was saying i'm i'm done with you you bit me and (laughs) you're never coming back to church uh but the other part of my head remembered what nancy thomas said and was trying to remember hey You're growing. You're getting bigger. One day, you'll be stronger. One day, who knows what God's going to do with you. One day, God can do great things. God can take this crazy, broken little kid who's biting me and won't listen to anything and do something with him. And God does that. God takes broken, messed up people, messed up situations, and he saves. And the, the truth is, every one of us, apart from Jesus, are just like that little boy. Or just like Zacchaeus. We may be rich, we may be poor, we may have hurt and abused people, we may have hurt and abused ourselves. We can also look at our heart and know the own sin and evil in it. If Jesus pulled his hand back from us, where would we be? What would be the things that we would do to others? How would we hurt and crush those around us? How would we betray people? We would. Every one of us is like Judas and Peter, denying Christ and betraying him. Every one of us is like Zacchaeus, in doing wrong to others. And Jesus looks at him with eyes of a friend and still loves him. And it's not because of Zacchaeus and how great he is and not because of how tall he is, because he's not. Uh, but Jesus loves him because the God the Father loved him from the beginning of time. Somehow, some way, God calls his people to him. And he loves them. We see Jesus treating Zacchaeus like family. He eats dinner with him. And again, this is, this is normal and typical for us. We can think, who do you, you don't normally eat dinner with people off the street or strangers or someone you don't know, but you eat dinner with people like family. Jesus treats him like family, and his eyes would have been delighting in him. I love to think about, about this. and um, when, when we talk about God loving the needy, loving those who are hurting, loving those in pain at the end of their rope, sometimes we'll think, I think Joel just said a second ago, sometimes we'll think people far away, uh, but it can be people within our very own church. Every one of us has hurts and pain and need. One of my favorite illustrations um, is being in in school. And it's it's scary. It's terrifying. The lunchroom is scary. But if if you have your lunch and you're going down, you can sit with your friends and your buddies, or you can go sit with the kid that's sitting by themselves. You may not know that kid. You may not know what's going on. They may want to be by themselves because they don't want to talk to anybody. But all of us need friends. All of us need people to talk to. It may be a neighbor on your street who doesn't have any family, who's by themselves, who doesn't have anybody to to spend a holiday with or to laugh with or watch a game with or talk with, living life together. There are so many of us that are hurting and broken and and just need someone to to have community with. We saw in Zephaniah that it says God is a mighty warrior who saves. He sees things that aren't right and he says, I'm going to fix that. He he looks in our own lives and says, this is wrong, I'm going to fix it. And then he calls us to go out and find things that are wrong and try our best to fix them. Sometimes we don't do so well. Sometimes we get bit. Uh, sometimes we'll get mad and lose our temper when we shouldn't. But God is a God who loves to save and work in hopeless and broken situations. We see that it's, it can be simple as loving the needy, it doesn't have to be very complicated. It can just go to someone who's, who's not a friend, who has no friends, and tells them, with your actions and with your words, you matter, you're welcome here, you're valuable, and you're loved. And we only do that because we know God loves us, because we know he's a God who rescues. We also see in the story that how the crowd responds to Jesus. They say he's gone in to be a guest of a man who's a sinner. When we look at the story, who are we? There are some of us who know their own brokenness and know they need Jesus and they know we need his grace. They know that we're sinners. Some of us are like those in the crowd that sit in judgment. But we know if if we are one of God's children we're in the same shoes as Zacchaeus we don't deserve anything but we know that because of Jesus we're loved because of what he's done we're accepted and as soon as we forget about Jesus forget what he's done we become like those in verse 7 and those in the the Pharisees throughout the New Testament that sit back and judge others for their sins condemning them forgetting verse 10 which says the son of man came to find lost people and to save them that's why he came that's why he came back then that's why he's still working today that's what he loves to do. He goes to broken people and broken families and broken communities and he starts to fix it. He takes those people who have hurted and cheated I get it again, who have hurt and cheated people and taken from them, but Jesus is stronger and he's more powerful than those things. He changes us. He changes our hearts so that we can receive his grace and his forgiveness and his love. I pray today that you're reminded who Jesus is, what he's done for you, that you believe it that you know Jesus to be your friend, to be forgiven, to be loved by the creator of the world. I also want to say that there may be some of you that came here today, and this may be the first time you've heard about this, or maybe it's, the, uh, it's hitting you in some different way. I know that there are leaders here that would love to talk with you. I, I would love to talk with you too, but I don't know very many people here. Uh, but there are leaders here that, that probably know you and may know your family and know some of your story, and they love to talk with you and to pray with you so that you can feel and know and believe what it's like to be a child of God, mm-hmm. to be seen by God with those eyes and loved and accepted. Mm-hmm. We see in verse 9, Jesus tells the crowd that today is the day for, for this family to be saved from sin. Yes, even this tax collector is one of God's children. God's love is for everybody, it's for everyone, no matter what they've done or where they've been or the things that are shameful and embarrassing. And He also calls them to come today. Don't put it off, don't delay. We don't know what the future holds. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you come to people who have unclean lips and unclean hearts, unclean lives, and live among people who are the same. And yet, you do the cleaning. You're the one who rescues and changes. Father, we pray for your Holy Spirit to work here in this community, in the native communities that... uh, the Hills and Letchworths and I work with. Father, we pray for things to change, for communities that are broken to change. We thank you that you see injustice and you move, that you love to rescue widows and orphans from their distress, that you love to give us your robes of righteousness and dress us and care for us. Father, again, we just thank you for who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.